Blessed Lord, we cannot imagine what it's going to be like in that day. And all of your children are gathered around your throne from every tribe and nation. And are able to praise you and worship you unhindered. We'll be able to see you in all of your glory. And we will know, as we've never known before, the overwhelming, humbling love that you have for us. And we'll be in the place of absolute peace. and joy unspeakable. And we thank you for those moments on earth when we as believers can gather together and lift our voices in praise and worship and open our hearts to you. You are Lord God Almighty. And we are those that for reasons we can never fathom, never comprehend, never understand, you have loved us. Lord, you know my heart's desire that you be glorified. It's a mystery to me that simple human words you can take and use them as your instruments to accomplish your purpose. And I ask, dear Father, that this human voice that will speak to ears and minds and hearts should somehow be overruled by folks hearing deep in their souls the voice of God. Thank you for the privilege of worship. Worship in song, worship in spoken truth, worship in giving. Worship and praying. Have your way in Jesus' name. We ask it. Amen. If you were not here last night, you missed the, missed the best sermon of the week. Don't you think so, Don? When you understand that God is sovereign, He guides your steps, you can be at rest no matter what happens. I had come prepared to go one direction, but because we missed last night, the Lord has another direction, which builds on the foundation of what we've already seen on Sunday morning and Sunday night. What does it mean to be like Jesus? We have sung songs of praise and worship to him. What does it really mean to be like Jesus? Most any Christian that has years of being a Christian knows God wants us to be like Jesus. What does that really mean? We use that as sort of a nebulous term, but nobody ever puts a real definition to it or are never really precise about what it means to be like Jesus. What does it mean to be like Jesus? 
It says in 1 John 2, 6, if we say we abide in him, we ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. So to be like Jesus means that I walk like Jesus. How was that? It says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Though he was rich, and we'll see something of what that means in a few moments. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So there we have a little insight that we need to be poor. And he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at three scenes in our Lord Jesus' life to discover just one aspect of what it means to be like Jesus. The first thing we're going to look at is the humility of his birth. If you would look with me at Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Luke chapter 2, let me begin in verse 1. It says, and this is the Christmas story that we're very familiar with, but this is what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for, her, for them in the inn. Everything in God's Word is God speaking to us what's precious to His heart, what He is like and what His will is, both in spoken word and by illustration through human events. We often overlook that. But God is saying, this is who I am. This is what I am like. This is how I behave. This is what I value. One of the most humbling studies I've ever done was on the humanity of Christ. We'll see just a bit of it tomorrow night. But I sat at my desk, and I am, I am humbled when we talk about or sing about the majesty of the Lord. But I want to tell you something. When I saw Jesus in His humanity and all that that meant, there were moments I would sit at my desk and weep. His majesty humbles me. But his humanity humbles me more. And by his humanity we see what God values. What's important to the heart of God. Now consider this scene that we've just read. The humility of his birth. Here are the circumstances. 
the governor required they go to be registered in their city, which happened to be Bethlehem. He made a decree. But you know what? He made the decree because God made him make the decree. God had a prophecy to fulfill. He had a plan to fulfill. And that plan was his Messiah, his son, his only begotten son, was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so he simply moved upon the governor to declare or decree they must go to their hometown to be registered. He turns the hearts of kings like channels of water. Just as surely as he had Cyrus, king of Persia, release the Jews to go back to their homeland. He was a pagan king, but God moved on him to release his children to go back to their homeland. Just as surely as that, God himself decreed, my son will be born in Bethlehem. And so the governor was simply carrying out what God had already planned. We need to remember that. God is on his throne. He owns everything. He rules everything. He guides everything. He accomplishes his will, and nobody can stay his hand. He does what he pleases. He is God. And we need to make a paradigm shift in our thinking. It's not about me. People say about things God does, well, it's not fair. Would I dare say to God it's not fair? He created me. He owns me. He rules. He always does what is righteous and just. It's not about me. It's about his will. Because he owns it all. And so the governor re required that they go to their town. It was a difficult journey. It was 70 miles, actually 70 plus miles, through a three-day trip through dangerous mountainous terrain. They didn't have automobiles in interstates. They had to walk or ride a donkey. Mary was in the last week of her pregnancy. Think of that for a moment. What OBGYN would allow a woman to take a journey like that three miles, 70, I mean three days, 70 plus miles through dangerous territory, mountainous region in the last week of her pregnancy? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you see, God is not after our convenience and our comfort. He's after accomplishing his will. And so in the last week of her pregnancy, she had to make the journey. All we know about Mary is that she was a virgin. That's all we know. She was an unknown figure. She was a peasant girl, probably a teenager, 16 or 17 years old. Jesus was born in an animal shelter. Perhaps a barn, perhaps a cave. The Bible doesn't say. Ancient tradition says it was a cave. A stable was never stated in the Scriptures. Now, if God is saying something through what he's doing, what is he saying? He chose Joseph, who was a carpenter, from Nazareth, that was a wild town, did not have a good reputation. He chose Mary, a girl who had never been with a man. He impregnated her by the Holy Spirit. Was he concerned about her reputation? You know what they would have thought of her. In fact, one time they said, we know who our father is. He was considered to be illegitimate. 
She wasn't even married. We must understand, God is not concerned about my reputation or your reputation. God's concerned that His will be done, that He be glorified by His will being done, that He be glorified by His will being done by His Spirit. And here they were in this animal shelter, and all the things that go with animals in a barn or a stable or in a, in a cave where animals stay, insects, smell, droppings on the floor, most, not the most sterile conditions. And I wondered what it was like, for here was Joseph who had never known his wife Mary, and here he was, the one present to deliver that baby. That's not the most comfortable situation. And then when the announcement was made, it was announced to lowly shepherds, the lowest on the totem pole of society. It was not announced to kings and, and princes. It was not announced to the religious leaders. The angels came and announced it to shepherds out in a field. The Lord Jesus came in lowest humility. And everything that surrounded his birth spoke of lowliness, humility. God values, God treasures humility. One of the reasons we do not see God move in our churches is we're too proud. We're children of God, but we're proud. If I don't make deliberate choices, I'm going to have pride. Flesh is going to have its way. And what our pastor read for us tonight, God says he dwells in the high and holy place, but also with those of lowly and contrite heart. The God who dwells in the high and holy place dwells with those of lowly and contrite heart. If we want to know the presence of God in ways we've never known it in Wynn Baptist Church, we have to have lowly hearts. If you want to know the presence of God with you in your life, in your own time alone with Him, you need a lowly heart because God's Word says that's where He dwells. That's why the Lord Jesus said, unless you be, become converted and be as little children. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. It is lowliness that God values. And so when his son comes, he came in absolute lowliness. And everything about his birth spoke of lowliness. Now we look at the second scene. The second scene is the humility of his life. If you look in your Bible with me at Philippians chapter 2, familiar passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he was Jesus, was the eternal Son of God dwelling with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. God does not need us. He is absolutely self-existent. And he with the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father were perfectly in bliss. So the Lord Jesus, before he was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God was with the Father, with the Spirit, in absolute joy, absolute peace, absolute love, and wonderful fellowship, infinite fellowship. Because you see, the Father knows himself as distinct from the Son. The Son knows himself as distinct from the Father and distinct from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows himself as distinct from the Father and the Son. Three persons in one. Truth we can never understand and truth we can never illustrate. Any illustration is less than it is. And so they dwelt in complete, perfect bliss. And yet they loved Mankind. And I don't understand this, but from eternity past, the plan was Jesus, or the Son of God, would have to come and redeem us with His own blood. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so there came a moment when it was the ripeness of time That he was to be born into the world. And what he did, and the Greek word is kenosis. But what he did was he laid aside those eternal attributes to become not like a human being, to become a real human being. Who would not live by any of his divine power. Now, folks, this is something people have a hard time with, but it's biblically true. When he walked on the earth, he was not omniscient, he didn't know everything. When he walked on the earth, he was not omnipotent. When he walked on the earth, he was not om omnipresent. He was a human being in every sense of the word. If he was not a human being, he could not identify with me. And if he was not a human being like me, I couldn't identify with him. He experienced what I have to experience. He walked like I have to walk. He lived by faith and obedience like I have to live by faith and obedience. And so what he did was he emptied himself. He never lost his divinity. As a human being, he was still divine, but he chose not to use his divinity on earth. And you read in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't Jesus who did the miracles. Peter was quite clear on the day of Pentecost. The miracles were done by God through Christ. I always thought it would be a much better miracle for him to put the head back on the John the Baptist and raise him up. Why Lazarus? Why not John the Baptist? That was his cousin. That was the forerunner. That was the prophet. That would have gotten their attention, wouldn't it? Why didn't he do that? It wasn't the Father's will. There's a verse in Luke, the fifth chapter, where it says, and the power of God was with him to heal that day. Why would Dr. Luke put it that way? Obviously, because the power of God was not present for him to heal all the time. 
He could only heal when the Father wanted him to heal. Why did he go by the pool of Siloam? <coughs> Excuse me. Heal one man and leave all the rest. It was the Father's will. He just did what the Father wanted him to do. That's the only thing he had power to do because he lived just like you have to live. He lived by faith. He lived by obedience. He walked in love with his Father and he depended on the Holy Spirit. Gerald Hawthorne was a Greek scholar at Wheaton College, wrote a book called uh, The Presence and the Power. It's a study on the Holy Spirit and the life of the Lord Jesus. And he has a statement like this, and this is a paraphrase, but he says, everything that was available to Jesus is available to us. And so he laid aside those heavenly rights and privileges in order to be born into this world as that helpless little baby. And he had to grow up through boyhood into manhood, living just like you and I live. Luke indicates learning just like we have to learn. He didn't automatically know the Old Testament. He didn't automatically know the Pentateuch. He had to learn it along with the other Jewish boys. So he emptied himself, he owned everything, he possessed all power, he held all authority, he reigned in sovereignty, but he gave it up and laid it down. He exchanged being infinite sovereign ruler to become a lowly bondservant. Now think of this for a moment. He was the creator of the very woman that gave him birth. He was the creator of the very man that was going to be his earthly father. He was the creator of all the animals that were going to be gathered around. He was the creator of the shepherds. He created the angels that announced it to the shepherds. But in that manger, as a helpless baby, messing whatever diaper he had, sucking his mother's breast, he was purely human. The eternal Son of God made himself nothing. 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 And this is why, dear ones, he can say in Luke 9, 23, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, meaning lay down his rights. Take up his cross daily and follow me. How he ha does he have the right to say that to me? Because he gave up his heavenly rights. He laid down his rights and he became a bondservant to take up his cross and die. He says, if you want to be mine, this is what you must do. You lay down your rights. You take up your cross daily and you follow me in obedience as I followed my father in obedience. He said... The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He lived the life of a servant. He says, I am among you as the one who serves. You see, that last night when he washed the disciples' feet, they had walked into the room. There was always a servant present in these homes that would wash the feet. It would be the lowest servant in the house, and he would wash the dirty feet that had walked through the dusty, dirty streets. And he'd wash the feet because they laid on couches by the table. 
There was no servant. The bowl was there. The pitcher was there. The towel was there. But none of the other disciples, none of the disciples saw it. They just walked on past it. Because you see, they were about to take the lowest servant's place and wash the feet. They never saw. But the Lord Jesus is a servant in his heart. And he took the place of the lowest servant and girded himself and he went around and washed the dirty feet, even the feet of his betrayer, Judas. Because that is his heart. He couldn't help it. He wasn't saying, well, I'm going to teach these boys a lesson. I'm going to humiliate them right here. That's not his heart. He came to serve. And he cannot help it. And he keeps on serving us even now. Now we look at the humility of his lordship. In his present state, he's exalted. We'll not take the time to look at all the scriptures, but Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, he's exalted above every name. His name is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We sing about that tonight. He is Lord. All things are under his feet. He says, all authority in heaven or earth has been given unto me. He rules as Lord. His word is the final word. Whatever he says is done. So he's Lord. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, he's glorified. And it says, his face shining like the sun in its strength. You and I cannot walk outside and look bare-eyed at the sun. The Lord Jesus is fully glorified and He's shining like the sun in its full strength. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 17 he returns glorified and triumphant. And there's going to be a day when all of a sudden he appears in his glorified state. And what a sight that's going to be. The sun will be pale compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 6 verse 15 says, He's the only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, from heaven to lowliness in a manger, to be a servant in his adulthood, to glorified as Lord. One other thing I want to mention, and this is parentheses, and I'll not charge you anymore for this. For 30 years, he lived in Nazareth. Scholars pretty much agree that his father must have died. He's never mentioned again after Jesus' 12th birthday. He lived in a small Middle Eastern home. He had four brothers, perhaps at least two or three sisters and maybe more. So here they were, the mother the brothers and sisters, all in a small one-room house. He was working as a carpenter in the carpenter shop. Rabbis waited till they were 30 years old to begin. But you see, his mother was a widow, and Jesus was the eldest in the family. 
So he worked in the carpenter's shop to take care of his mother and to help raise the rest of the kids. And nobody but his mother knew who he was. Men came to have him make them an oxen or repair their, their, I mean, make them a yoke or repair a yoke that was broken. They did not know they were doing business with the Son of God. Calloused hands, dirty fingernails, working as a carpenter. And he never tried to display who he was. He never exposed it, neither did his mother. And here he is, human form, like any man, and nobody recognized him as different from anybody else. And even the prophet Isaiah and the early church fathers say he was not an attractive man. He was nothing to look at. When I was a young man, I thought he must have been the handsomest of men. But the early church fathers and Isaiah said he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. Nothing about him would naturally attract anybody. And for 30 years, he lived that kind of life, obscure, in Nazareth. Now think of that. We major on the three years of ministry. He was obscure and an ordinary in a little village called Nazareth, ten times longer than he had public ministry, and nobody knew him. Not even his cousin John the Baptist. It wasn't until God told John the Baptist who he was that then he knew the Messiah has come. Now would you look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Hold your marker there before we go there. Do you remember in the third appearance of Jesus in the Gospel of John that John records that P Peter had said, I'm going fishing. The other guy said, we're going with you. And they went fishing. And here was the resurrected Lord that appeared on the seashore. John recognized him. Peter didn't know who it was. John said, it's the Lord. Peter had stripped down to fish. He girded himself, jumped in the water, and swam ashore. And Jesus had prepared them breakfast. Have you ever wondered where he got the fish? This is the resurrected Lord. And he cooked breakfast for those men. And Peter had denied three times. He even knew him. And they had never conversed about it. And yet the Lord Jesus, out of that servant heart, prepared them breakfast by the seashore. That's his humility. And he served breakfast to Simon Peter, who denied he even knew him. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. There's going to be a wedding feast. The Son of God with his bride, which is the church. And this resurrected Lord of lords and King of kings, the bridegroom, like he did at the Last Supper, He's going to gird himself and he's going to serve us at the table. Do you remember how Peter responded when Jesus got to him and was going to wash his feet? He said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. He said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. How are we going to feel when this absolutely pure, beautiful Savior and Lord girds himself to serve us? You see, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the full revelation of the Father's heart. The Father's heart is to serve in love. You see, God is humble. We don't think of that. We think of him in his majesty, exalted, glorified. But Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so the lowliness of his birth is the Father's heart. The lowliness of his life is the Father's heart. The lowliness of his servanthood and his enthronement and resurrection is the Father's heart. And the only place in all the Word of God where Jesus ever spoke about his own heart, he says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. He could have said, I am like my Father. I am meek and lowly in heart. That's why the Word of God says He dwells in the high and holy place, but also with Him who is of a low and contrite heart. That's why David wrote in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, dear ones, the only ground on which we can meet God is the ground of lowliness, the ground of brokenness, the ground of humility, because that's where God is. The Word of God tells me if I'm proud, He resists me. If a church is proud, He resists it. But if I humble myself, I can know His presence. If a church walks in humility, 
that church can know his presence because that's where God dwells with those who are humble. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility. Colossians 3, 12 says, put on humility. That is something I must do. I must choose. I must choose. I must make a choice. If I want to know God's presence, if I really want to have intimate fellowship with him, I must choose to put on humility. I must choose to humble myself. He's not going to do it for me. He tells me to do it. You say, what does it mean? To humble yourself. Humility comes from two things. Humility comes first from getting a clear vision, a heart vision of who God is. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he says, Woe is me. Woe is me. It comes from a clear vision of who God is. It comes secondly from a clear vision of what I am. And when I see who God is in his glory, in his humility, then I will see the utter despicableness of my own soul without him. And all I can do is cry out, Lord, be merciful to me. Regardless of how long I live and regardless of how long I've walked with him, I must keep a clear vision of God in all his purity and beauty. And I must always remember what I am without him. It was Paul who said when he saw his own wretchedness, wretched man that I am. And then he said, thank God through Jesus Christ. In the rest of our days, if we want to know his presence, we will have that awareness of our wretchedness and of his grace. And he says, he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It's our choice. Shall I be proud? Pretend everything's fine? Or shall I get on my face and say, God, I've had sin inside of me, wrong attitudes, wrong words, wrong deeds. I know you forgive me, but oh, I ask you for complete cleansing. And I submit completely to you. Let me see you more clearly. Let me become more like you in humility. Father, so easily pride can rise up within us and take over. So we find it difficult to say to our mates, will you forgive me for what I said? Or to our children even, will you forgive me for the way I treated you? 
we find it difficult to be honest about our sin because we're proud. And Lord, for some of us, it's been so long since we've shed a tear over our wretchedness apart from you. Dear Lord, I ask that you would search our hearts tonight. Dear Father, are our attitudes pure before you? Are our relationships pure before you? Are our viewing habits pure before you? Are our imaginations pure before you? Have our words been careless before you? Father, have we carried wrong attitudes with resentments and anger? All the ugliness that's unlike the Lord Jesus. Lord, show us what in us is unlike Jesus. Show us what we need to be like Jesus. Father, teach us to humble ourselves. Teach us to humble ourselves. Lord, teach us to humble ourselves so that we might have your real presence with us because you promised to dwell with those of humble and contrite hearts. Only you can deal with this, Father. Only you can expose what's true about our, our inner beings. And so I pray that you turn on the searchlight of your spirit and show us where we need to repent and where we need to humble ourselves. You said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Lord, show us how individually, personally, precisely, Dear Father, how we thank you for what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Born, born in humility, lived in humility, served in humility, and even in eternity, is humble in all of his majesty. Have your way, Father, with us. We pray through Christ.